welcome to Crashing the War Party, where we stand firmly against the government fomenting Cold War, Hot War, Lukewarm, or any other American war. And I'm here with my compatriot, Daniel Larson, and we will be talking to Hina Shamsi of the ACLU today about the U.S. drone program and how the use of drones in our military arsenal continues unabated in the Biden administration. But first, we'd like to talk about the president's remarks this week at the United Nations against the backdrop of last week's announcement that the U.S. and U.K. will be transferring nuclear submarine technology to Australia, as well as enhancing the U.S. military footprint in Australia with more ships, bombers, personnel, and other assets. Uh, So, Dan, um, Biden said Tuesday that he did not want to pursue a new Cold War, nor did he want a, a world divided into rigid blocks. But isn't that what he is helping to promote with this new agreement, otherwise known as AUKUS? Well, it, it certainly looks that way. It's it's a uh, trilateral uh, defense agreement. The, the Australians are, are quick to say that it's not a, a pact or an alliance to, to reassure their neighbors that it's not uh, more threatening uh, maybe to, to them. Uh, but but what we what we do see is closer military cooperation between these three countries, uh, with the, the obvious target being China, uh, and this combined together with the the buildup of the uh, the so-called Quad with India and Japan, uh, as well as Australia and the U.S., uh, you, you begin to see the architecture of an anti-China coalition forming, uh, and providing Australia with nuclear-powered submarines is certainly a, a major step uh, towards uh, building up the, the military component of that coalition. Uh, we, we can understand why perhaps Australia wants those subs for their own reasons, uh, and we can understand why they, they ended up canceling the, the contract with the French, uh, which caused so much uh, of a commotion uh, with the French government. Uh, but the, the question I think we ought to be asking is, why is why is this the right policy for the U.S.? Uh, because we're, we're basically locking ourselves now into a very long-term relationship uh, with a, you know, even, even an even closer military relationship with Australia than we've had before. Of course, we've been treaty allies for a long time, uh, but, but this is the first time except for Britain that we're providing another country with uh, the technology for nuclear-powered submarines. And so that's a, that's a major increase of our commitment uh, beyond anything that we've had before. And it's and it seems like this is something that was done with, with very little consideration of the implications or, or, or really no policy process at all. Uh, a very small group in the National Security Council seems to have been privy to what they were doing. Uh, no one else was looped in. No, Nothing else seemed to be factored into this decision except let's get together uh, and, and forge this new pact against China. And so the I don't think they've accounted for any of the regional fallout. They don't. They haven't. They certainly didn't account for the French reaction, which they completely failed to anticipate. And I don't think they've thought through the non-proliferation concerns because what, one of the things that has uh, that, that people have raised as a possible problem for giving this technology to Australia is that it it opens up a loophole or it creates a, a double standard that other proliferators can then use right. down the road, uh, where you can divert. Uh, enriched material, high enriched uranium from naval propulsion into a weapons program, potentially. And so by by giving 
Australia this technology. No one really thinks that Australia is going to build a nuke, but it, it sets that precedent that other countries could then follow and then point to the Australia example and say, you, don't, you can't really have any objection to our doing this when you were giving it away to them. And so there, it, it's a major shift in policy that I think has not been thought through uh, very much at all. And so it's that, that to me is probably the most concerning thing that they, they just sort of jumped at this because they had the chance to do it. Yeah. Uh, and because it could be framed as an anti-China move and being anti-China is all the rage now. Well, what's interesting, and I, I mean, I don't know a lot about it, but as you know, as I've been following this issue more broadly, I remember that the Trump administration had been courting such an alliance with Australia pretty um, adamantly, and Australia had pushed back, saying, "No, we don't. You know, we don't want to accelerate these tensions with China by having more uh, U.S. assets in Australia," and they put us off. And I think part of that was Trump. You know, he was a, a put off in itself. Um, secondly, I don't think the tensions were as high between, I mean, they were growing between Australia and China at the time. And I know that there's been a lot, there's been a lot of back and forth over the last uh, few years, particularly through COVID, you know, mostly over trade issues. Um, but it could be that, you know, uh, the Biden administration is just a, lot, a little more adept at, um, you know, uh, the, the outreach and uh, the conciliatory nature and has con had convinced, you know, Australia that this was the right way to go. Um, so I have a feeling that this was something that had been in the works for a long time, you know, through the, mil the two militaries working together and that Biden was able to, to clinch the deal. Um, I, what it, what is interesting to me is that the Biden administration had come into office, basically setting itself uh, in, in opposition, in contrast to the Trump uh, presidency, basically saying we are not the uh, bombastic, um, agitating force in the world. We are going to bring people together. We're going to bring allies together. We are going to lead with diplomacy rather than a, a military first approach, which he reiterated in his remarks at the UN yesterday. But you're right. Everything that they've done since coming into office in January has been the opposite when it comes to China. And we can include this new AUKUS deal uh, this is a this is huge, but the, but you know before even August they had been making entreaties with other countries in the region uh, with the Quad for example you brought up, but also Vietnam Vice President uh, Harris was in Vietnam recently trying to make this pitch, and Vietnam had demurred basically saying you know we we understand the security issues and implications, but we want to handle our own security. We want to have our, uh, uh, to manage this relationship with China without joining forces or being seen as taking a side on this. And so it, it, it's very interesting, you know, the mixed messaging that we're hearing from the administration, every single major official in the Biden administration that deals with security issues has testified over the last several months about the China challenge. Our budget 
whether it be the infrastructure bill or the defense bill, reflects this growing urge or sense of competition with China. We're putting tons of, of, of new monies into the defense budget for ships and technology to confront China. And so I don't care what Biden said at the UN yesterday, um, it's all about actions and his actions are reflecting a, 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 a movement towards this Cold War he professes not to want. Yeah, it, it's been a, a very confrontational posture uh, so far this year, uh, and, it, and it seems set to, to keep going in that direction. Um, and, and one thing that I know a number of observers uh, pointed out uh, is that I think the same week that the AUKUS deal was announced, the Chinese said that they were going to apply to join the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, which had originally been envisioned as a way to uh, to counter Chinese influence or as a way to to compete with Chinese influence when the U.S. was still part of it. Of course, the U.S. withdrew, and now China is going to jump in and and reap the benefits, uh, at least potentially, assuming that they're allowed in, and, and I imagine they will be uh, at some point. And so you see the the real difference in the approach between the two governments. China keeps emphasizing building economic ties and wielding influence in that way, we keep building up uh, military ties and and approaching the region that way. And one of the things that I keep hearing about the, the weakness of our approach to Southeast Asia is that we overemphasize the security dimension uh, and, and pay very little attention to the economic side of things. And of course, it's the economic side of things that most of these countries are most interested yeah. in because that's where they're going to uh, that's how they're going to prosper. That's how they're going to develop and, and become wealthier countries. And right now, uh, we're, we're not really part of that competition or we're, our, our role in that competition on the economic side is quite limited. Uh, and instead, we focus entirely, or maybe not entirely, but almost entirely on uh, the side of hard power uh, rather than looking at other ways to, to boost our influence. And so I'm not interested in a Cold War with China, but if you're interested in trying to uh, build U.S. influence and advance U.S. interests in this part of the world, uh, it seems to me that you you have to look at something other than just building up military ties because most of the countries in the region are not interested in a closer security alignment with the U.S. They don't want to have to choose between the two right. great powers. Uh, they, they want to do business. And you know that, that ought to be a strength for the U.S. Uh, to, to increase our uh, economic ties with this part of the world, uh, but that's not something that we've been doing. Right, and I and I know, and there's much smarter people than myself, but they, I know that there are people out there arguing about the balance that that, that you know nobody wants to see China bully and take advantage of these smaller countries, particularly those countries that we have been historical allies with, like Philippines and uh, South Korea and Japan. Okay, is there a way that we can assure or at least assist that they build up their own defenses to deny China the ability to be that regional bully without us coming in and leading that effort and being seen as uh, trying to pursue or uh, you know persist in being a hegemon, a global hegemon, 
And I feel like this Australian deal sort of crossed the line because it's not just about the nuclear subs. It is actually expanding our physical U.S. military footprint in Australia. We're adding to uh, the personnel, uh, the bombers, the ships. Uh, we're going to be doing more exercises with Australia in the region. So I feel like our military presence is enhanced in the region. And I feel like that is the provocation that you speak of, as opposed to us sort of assisting from a distance or the offshore balancing, if you will. Right. And, and that brings up the this story that we heard about recently uh, related to the, this possible uh, outbreak of war last year between China and the U.S., where they thought that our South, South China Sea exercises uh, were possibly a prelude to an attack. Uh, and so they, they were misreading this extremely badly, but they, but they were evidently genuinely worried that the U.S. was preparing to launch a first strike against them. And so an agreement like this can only fuel that kind of paranoia uh, and, and that kind of fear uh, of a U.S. attack against China. And that's going to encourage China to take more aggressive measures and to build up their armaments even faster than they've been doing. I mean, it's true that China has already been increasing their nuclear arsenal, apparently, and they have been building up their Navy uh, before this. Mm -hmm. But all of this incentivizes them to do even more of right. that. And so it, 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 doesn't, it didn't create an arms race, but it, it certainly fuels it. Yeah, and I, on that note, there's a New York Times piece uh, today that says that the Chinese had that agrees they have been building up their their navy and already have twelve nuclear powered submarines. But this action, this AUKUS agreement, will probably lead to their plans escalate. You know, accelerating to more nuclear powered submarines, an arms race in in the region. I feel like there, you know, people often say, well, do you want China to basically take over the region? What, what are you suggesting that we be completely hands off? And I, you know, I'm pretty clear eyed. I don't like the Chinese government. I don't like what they do to their people. I, you know, they, there, there are a lot of things wrong with the way not only they, um, crack down domestically on people. I don't like every aspect of their Belt and Road Initiative. I don't like their exploitation of developing countries. I don't trust them. But I would like to have a reckoning of what a aggressive US military posture, what if, if I, that is a national security interest for the U.S. to be aggressively um, projecting power in that region. That hasn't been sufficiently answered for me. What is in it for us? Why does China's actions affect the United States? And um, I'd be interested in, in how you answer that question, but I, I think that that's at the center of everything here. Is this a national security interest of the United States. Uh, well, and I, I, I think the, the fear is if, if China dominates the region, that then they will be able to 
project power farther afield and and potential and also potentially cut us off uh, from uh, markets in Asia and so on. Uh, but I, I think I think that second fear is overstated. I don't think they're they're interested in in cutting us out so much as they are as the, as they're interested in expanding their influence and their reach. Um, in terms of being able to project power further, uh, it's that's probably it seems like that's bound to happen as as China becomes wealthier. I don't know how you you keep bottling up their power uh, on the military side. I don't know how you keep them from being able to project power beyond uh, their immediate neighborhood. I, I don't I don't know that you can, and I'm not sure I'm not sure that it really is necessary for us to be able to uh, continue to secure those allies that we actually have, uh, and. It's, it's certainly not necessary in order to secure the United States itself. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm very skeptical that there's any reason for us to keep going down the road that we're, we're clearly clearly going down, uh, and I and I do fear that it is going to lead to a clash uh, that will be much worse than any war we've had since probably the Second World War, uh, and and I think it's also much more avoidable uh, than many of the, the other major wars that we've had in that we, we can see where this is heading and we can choose to take a different path. Uh, but, but right now, all of the energy, all of the, the pressure is pushing us towards confrontation. today is Hina Shamsi. She is the director of the ACLU National Security Project, which is dedicated to ensuring that U.S. national security policies and practices are consistent with the Constitution, civil liberties, and human rights. She has litigated cases upholding the freedoms of speech and association and challenging targeted killing, torture, unlawful detention, and post-9-11 discrimination against racial and religious minorities. She is the author and co-author of publications on targeted killing, torture, and extraordinary rendition, and has monitored and reported on the military commissions at Guantanamo Bay. She is also a lecturer in law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches a course in international human rights. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It's, it's our pleasure. Uh, earlier this year, you wrote about Trump's loosening of the rules governing drone strikes, which enabled the escalation of the drone war that took place during his presidency. Uh, in describing them, you wrote that the Trump killing rules apply to all parts of the world outside the United States, including countries in which there is recognized armed conflict. And the Trump rules authorize lethal strikes in countries where Congress has not authorized force and human rights law strictly prohibits extrajudicial killing. Uh, at the beginning of his term, Biden suspended the Trump rules and started a review of uh, how these drone strikes are carried out. Uh, what do you expect from the Biden administration's review? Uh, and Do you expect uh, any uh, improvements? Well, I certainly expect and hope better than has been reported in the media. I'm thinking about a New York Times article um, I believe in August, um, that uh, indicated that the, the Biden administration was poised to issue a new set of rules that were essentially a continuation of rules that had been placed during the uh, Obama and Trump administrations. Um, and I read that and it looked Essentially, if that article is right, that the administration, the Biden administration was poised to 
tinker with the bureaucracy of death instead of ending extrajudicial killing like we and so many others have been calling for. Right. And of course, we saw just recently with the, the terrible uh, drone strike in Kabul at the end of August, uh, how that uh, bureaucracy of death uh, works and then what it does. Uh, last week, uh, in addressing uh, the military's acknowledgement of error in that strike, uh, you said it should be an inflection point and wake up call at long last. And you called by, on Biden to end this country's program of lethal strikes. If the president doesn't move to end these strikes, what can Congress do to rein them in and take away this presidential license to kill? Well, there's a lot to uh, unpack there. First of all, the terrible, awful um, tragedy of the Kabul strike. I think it's so important to note that what was unusual about the response to that strike, the public acknowledgement, the apology, um, the, you know, exploration of amends, that's a departure from the response to strikes um, that have resulted in grave civilian harm, uh, both in the context of wars like in Afghanistan and Syria, as well as outside of them at various different times, Pakistan, Yemen, Somalia, um, the list is unfortunately long. And what was different about this strike is, of course, the public attention. It took place in um, an urban area, Kabul. There was a lot of journalists' attention. There, there was a fabulous New York Times investigation, followed by you know Washington Post, CNN. That doesn't happen for the vast majority of allegations of civilian harm that have taken place that have been documented by um, media watchdogs and independent human rights groups. And so um, that's why I thought it was so important to say this should be a wake-up call, right? Um, and in part, I think we're still waiting to see what comes of the formal investigation that was announced, I think, just a couple of days ago um, that is due to take place over a period of 45 days because the results of past investigations have been anything but satisfying, right? One of the flaws of the many flaws in investigations is that military, and we're not even talking about lethal strikes conducted by the CIA, which virtually never get acknowledged, um, doesn't even do the fundamentals of interviewing family members or witnesses, right? Basic, basic investigative methods. Um, so let's see what's different about this one. God knows there really is, it, it needs to be a wake-up call. And then with respect to what can be done, you know, well, where to start? Let me start with um, the more the more immediate things, I think. You know, certainly, hopefully, pressure from members of Congress for an actual meaningful investigation. Uh, the military has said that it is exploring excrasha, what are called humanitarian payments. Um, exploration is, uh, should be a given. Um, and the least of what they can do is, you know, talk to family members and, and make actual meaningful amen, amends. And here I'm thinking, again, just of the really dismal record of the United States in, in these contexts. Um, Anand Gopal and Azmat Khan did an amazing investigation 
called The Uncounted. Um, and they talked about a man named uh, Basim uh, Razo who lost his wife and child, you know, just devastating, devastating harm. And the excratia amends payment offered to him was $15,000, which he rejected as insultingly low. So really all eyes, all eyes on the military at this one. What are you going to do now, given what you have not done in the past? And, and it is far, far past time for much, much better. So among the things members of Congress can do is to push for meaningful investigations. There is a record of Congress approving excratia payments in Afghanistan and elsewhere, which the Pentagon just doesn't make. So that's sort of like a starting point at the individual, deeply sorrow-filled tragedy level, right? But then more systemically, um, Congress needs to push the Biden administration are they truly going to end the forever wars uh, that President Biden has pledged? Because um, the forever wars, a centerpiece of that, um, certainly for the communities and countries on the receiving end of American lethal force, is a program of, uh, as I've called it and explained it in, in my writings, extrajudicial killing, right? Far from recognized battlefields, uh, unauthorized by Congress in violation of international law. And so, you know, we were talking about what the Biden administration is poised to do next. Well, Congress should press them to end that. But more systematically, why are we here where we are today, right? And there, I think you can lay a lot of the, the responsibility at the feet of Congress the Constitution says that only Congress has the power to declare war. For decades now, um, Congress has failed to exercise meaningful, uh, failed to exercise that power properly with hearings, with oversight, with, uh, you know, pushing back at executive branch unilateral claims, aggrandizing executive power. So among the things that Congress can do, which members have started, is um, war powers overhaul. And there's legislation in the House and I believe the, the Senate and, and in the House um, that that is going to or is aimed at reigning in presidential power. And I'm not going to get into the ins and outs here, but I think what's really important is to do the thing, to do away with the lawyerly sort of loopholes that uh, decades of executive branch lawyering have introduced into things like the definition of hostilities um, and what constitutes something that the executive branch says it has the authority to do as opposed to what Congress needs to do, but also to flip incentives. Right now, just at a very fundamental level, um, under the War Powers Resolution, uh, the executive continues to act unless Congress votes to rein it in. And an important reform would be to flip that switch, right? The executive, in case of genuine emergency, can exercise president, you know, the president can exercise his constitutional powers to respond to a genuine uh, emergency. But then for more, 
Congress needs to act to authorize it to go forward. So those are just some of the things that I think are really important in order to restore checks and balances that have led us, uh, failures and checks and balances that have led us into the forever wars and makes it so much harder to get out of them and the human rights costs and consequences of them. You're totally right, Hina. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning the war powers, because I think that is going to be an essential debate that we have and we must have going forward, specifically because now that we have withdrawn militarily from Afghanistan, there is a lot of talk about over the horizon counterterrorism capabilities. And I think that there is going to be a push from you know certain people on the Hill um, in concert with the military to keep up those drone strikes as a counterterrorism me- measure uh, in the wake of our withdrawal uh, from Afghanistan. So I think that's really important. I was wondering um, for our listeners, um, I, you know, having reported on the post 9-11 uh, wars uh, for some time now, I, I kind of sense that there is like the, the three parts of the drone war uh, beyond, you know, George Bush, you have the Obama drone wars, you have the Trump drone wars, and now we're in the, you know, the Biden era. Can you maybe quickly talk about what what difference there the differences there are between and do you have any sense of of the Biden drone wars and how much he has or has not kept up the pace from the Trump years and the Obama years in the in regards to airstrikes US airstrikes gosh Kelly you know how to ask the easy questions don't you <laughs> um so let me just start with over the horizon. I That term, I mean, it's like the latest lingo for something that this country has been doing for a very long time. Uh, lethal force from afar, remote killing, right? Um, and so I don't want, I hope folks aren't looking at those terms and thinking that it's anything radically new that hasn't already been proven to have, you know, huge costs for the rule of law, um, human rights, and American strategic costs. So if we're thinking about, as you said, you know, the different phases, right, the three parts, and of course, the first strike uh, that began this particular era of um, American use of force was the one by Bush in 2002 in Yemen. So then we fast forward and we have Obama uh, carrying out these strikes, uh, mainly starting in um, Pakistan. Um, and and I'll, I'll try and fast forward again, but you know, by the end of the Obama administration, um, the government, our government had established a policy and bureaucracy framework for use of lethal force that applied uh, against terrorism suspects, let's emphasize suspects, right? Um, That applied in areas outside of active hostilities. Now, the Obama administration never really defined areas outside of active hostilities, but it was, and and it's, it's a term that doesn't have any basis in domestic or international law, which is also a characteristic of the last 20 years, um, made up terms, cherry picking from different contexts. Um, but that term was commonly understood to, to mean locations outside of recognized battlefields, right? So, for example, 
Afghanistan and then later Iraq and Syria, which were armed conflict zones or were. Um, and the U.S. government said that it was going to abide by its law of war obligations in those in those conflicts. And, you know, we'll just put a full stop on that. Won't for now interrogate the numerous allegations of violations or excessive um, civilian casualties. The Obama rules were understood to apply to the rest of the world. Um, and more specifically, at various times, you know, I've mentioned Pakistan, also uh, Yemen, of course, Libya, Somalia. And the administration then sort of cobbled together a, a made-up set of rules, and they cherry-picked from different legal frameworks that are all supposed to protect international peace and security, human rights, uh, laws of war, um, and, and came up with what was called the presidential policy guidance, right? So um, that presidential policy guidance also responded to a significant amount of controversy and criticism uh, during the Obama years by, uh, with a veneer of policy safeguards that was supposed to limit civilian harm. And I think people during the Obama administration genuinely thought they were doing good, right? Um, but along comes Trump and shows how uh, fragile, meaningless no policy norms and safeguards are. So Trump's rules, um, the PSP, um, the acronyms just grow, um, essentially began with like a characteristically bellicose tone, signaling to the agencies essentially that they had authority and the gloves were off. And um, setting aside some really core to the Obama people safeguards that they had put in place to limit civilian harm. Um, for example, um, the Obama administration had required new, near certainty that what they called non-combatants would not be injured or killed, which apparently um, the Trump rules, which Trump rules kept in place. But the New York Times at the time reported that um, the Trump rules required lowered the requirement of near certainty that a target would be present at a specific location to reasonable certainty. Right. And you see the echoes of reasonable certainty in the defense or explanation that the Pentagon has has provided for the Kabul strike. Um, and so part of what was happening during the Trump administration and, you know, given all of the crises during the Trump administration, the fire hose we were drinking from, a lot of people were paying attention. But the Trump administration was carrying out more strikes with more civilian harm that people knew, and certainly exponentially more than was happening by the end of the Obama administration. So then now what we're left with is what is the Biden administration going to do? And that I think brings us back to, you know, the, the New York Times report, because again, if the Biden administration continues this program, it will continue a two decades old stretch of presidential claims to use lethal force um, uh, in parts of the world where we are not in an armed conflict that has exact, exacted, and it bears emphasis, the appalling toll on Muslim, brown, and black civilians 
who have been on the receiving end of this force. Are you concerned um, that there might be a shift, even if there is a shift back to the Obama era in which there are safeguards put in place, people are more cognizant of human harm, uh, and and the Biden administration sensing that and responding to that puts more guardrails on uh, do you, I, it, I'm sensing from you that that would not be enough given our conversation about AUMF and, and, and uh, war powers, uh, but are there people do you feel uh, out there, whether it be inside the administration or outside, that might be placated by feeling, okay, well, um, this is the more humane way of, of waging war. It's cleaner. It, it's, um, it, 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 is, it is more cognizant of the human toll and therefore protracting uh, the drone war, in a sense, the forever war. Uh, yes, absolutely, because that's what happened during the Obama years, right? We don't need to, you know, um, predict uncertainties when we look back and have that certainty. Um, because during by the end of the Obama administration, that president had entrenched uh, this program um, and and done so under the um, sort of rationale of maintaining flexibility while putting on a veneer of safeguards, right? And so, what did that do? That perpetuated the killing. And I'm just thinking. You know, I think I read this morning um, President Biden making his speech at the UN, you know, saying something about how this country needs to move away from a military force first approach, right? That this program of lethal strikes is a force first approach. To truly move away from that requires understanding and um coming to terms with the costs and consequences of that approach, which have been to the rule of law, to human lives, to international peace and security. They've contributed to destabilization uh, and mass migration in multiple countries in which it's been carried out. And what we really need is a fundamental shift in approach if the Biden administration is going to follow through on what the president himself has been saying. You know, what are the alternatives to a force first approach? Um, The administration has talked about putting diplomacy first while the people strikes continue. Um, how, How does that help? How are they actually addressing the, you know, what, my brilliant colleagues in the humanitarian field would say, which is, you know, the drivers of conflict and uh, displacement as opposed to contributing to it. What law enforcement measures? We used to have conversations during the Obama era about law enforcement and extradition, you know, working within the rule of law. I hear too few policymakers having those conversations, which are the ones that are necessary to move away from the forever wars approach of the last 20 years. And unfortunately, I think that's the case. Uh, One of the things that's been very strange listening to the Biden administration over the last few months is that on the one hand, they'll talk about how they've, they've ended the war, the forever war. They'll say that 
uh, as Biden did in his UN speech, that the U.S. is now not at war for the first time in 20 years. But at the, in the same breath, they'll say, oh, but we'll continue to attack terrorist groups in various countries uh, as we see fit. And so they, it, it's as if they're, they're sending uh, two sets of messages to different audiences. Uh, to, on the one hand, to, to tell the public, oh, look, the, the wars are over, but to reassure, uh, I suppose, the, the more hawkish elements in D.C. that uh, we're not really going to end those wars uh, in Syria and Yemen and, and Somalia. Uh, so don't, don't worry about that. You'll still have your drone wars. Uh, how, uh, how do we make sense of, of the Biden administration's position? Is this just, uh, are, they, are they using a smokescreen to cover up what they're doing or are they really just confused about what they want their policy to be? Those are all questions I would have for the Biden administration. It's very hard to um, right. yeah. to tell, but I think I think you know I think that what's important also to understand is that those of us, and it's not just the human rights community, right? Like we had um, in. July, June, July, gosh, I'm sorry, the months blur even in 2021. Um, but, you know, over 113 groups from the United States and around the world called for an end to this war-based approach and called for human rights promotion, equality, racial justice, right? Because let's recognize something else that there's not enough of a conversation about. It's just, you know, we've come to terms where talking about structural racism in domestic policy and policing, but we're not really talking about it as much as we should in foreign policy and national security policy. Um, and groups essentially saying you're increasing racial divides, you're increasing polarization by continuing this approach. And yet they have been, like it shouldn't escape anyone's notice that even before the Kabul strike, um, the administration, the Biden administration, had resumed lethal strikes in Somalia um, and invoked novel legal justifications that included a collective sense self-defense theory from AFRICOM, um, as well as citations to, Lord help us, the 2001 AUMF as the authorization for use of military force uh, as the domestic legal ground. And my question to the Biden administration is, what limit, if any, do you recognize to the collective self-defense theory or to the scope of the 2001 AUMF? Because what you are doing is completely of a piece with the trajectory that Kelly had mentioned, right? It's not a break from it. It's a continuation from it. And that's going to have consequences because what we have now, I think, and yes, we have tremendous polarization in this country. That's not news. Um, but what we also have is an urgent demand to say, you know, the entire world has reflected on what the response was of the United States in the post 9-11 era. A lot of lessons drawn by much of the world, many of us here in this country that are not new, which is to say there have been tremendous harms. This policy, this approach is one of the centerpieces of the uh, post 9-11 era, the forever wars, and it needs to end. Absolutely, and I, I think that's the, the right note to end on. Uh, I, I agree entirely. Thank you so much, Hina, for coming on. Our guest, Hina Shamsi, uh, Director of ACLU National Security Project. Thanks again. Thank you for having me.
Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time.